trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. This is a program dedicated to people who understand that freedom is not something you ask for from someone in authority. It's not even really something that you fight for, you know, tooth and nail. It's something that you claim as an inherent part of who you are. By the way, tip of the hat to my friend Kurt Mercadante for uh, reminding me of this. Yeah, if you are someone who really values your freedom, you have found a place where you will find encouragement and uh, sustenance for your soul, as well as a little uh, friendly kick in the seat of the pants every so often to remind you that uh, you got to claim it, you got to use it, you got to exercise it before you can really claim it as your own or before you can say that it's yours. Our show is brought to you by LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, and MonticelloCollege.org. So I want to start with something that uh, this caught my eye the other day. I shared this on Facebook, but here's an example of someone who understands what it is to be a free individual. And this is a story from the BBC. The headline says, man drove without license for more than 70 years. A man stopped by police told officers he'd been driving with no license or insurance for more than 70 years. While on patrol, police pulled over the man near Tesco Extra in Bullwell, Nottingham on Wednesday. Officers said the driver, born in 1938, told them he had been driving with no license or insurance since he was 12 and had never been stopped by police. Now, when I read that story, my first thought was, I have just found a new hero. (laughs) And, you know, 70 years, this guy... And, and, you know, of course, this did bring out some concerns. And I know there are those who probably right now are having the knee-jerk reaction. Hey, you know, the rest of us are playing by the rules. Why didn't he play by the rules? And at least one commenter on Facebook said, well, that's all fine and dandy, but people need to have insurance. I mean, what if something had happened? And they immediately jumped to the hypotheticals. But I think that 70-year clean driving record, never having been stopped by police since he was 12 years of age, I think that speaks pretty well for the guy's driving ability. And, and I know that there, there are those who are wringing their hands. Oh, the taxes, the fees, the regulation that this man avoided over 70 years. I mean, forgive me, maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong for thinking this, but that guy sounds like a model of what a free man is like. He didn't draw attention of the state, the atten- attention of the state, for seven decades. That's pretty good. I mean, I, I got to give the man props. So, what does that mean for you and me? Well, we've got our work cut out for us. If you want to be a free individual, you are living in a time where freedom is under one of the most sustained attacks that it's been under for quite some time. I mean, there have always been forces working against it, chipping away at it, and I don't think that ever really stops But what we have seen in the last couple of years has been, uh, I believe, unprecedented. Not only in how uh, ferociously it's gone after our freedoms, but in how widespread it is. This is a worldwide thing. 
So I hope to offer you a couple of things today that will uh, bolster your willingness and your desire to live as a free individual, not by begging permission from those who think that they rule you, but simply by acting like a free man or woman and going about your life as best you can. Now, there's risk, okay? We have to understand there is always going to be risk in life. And the coronavirus, scary as it may be, is one of those risks. But rather than trying to eliminate all risk from our lives, we've got to learn how to live with those risks, how to work around those risks. You know, it's taken way too long, but the truth is finally becoming almost impossible to deny. There are some, you know, dead-enders, you know, kind of like Saddam Hussein's regime, you know. Uh, there, are, there are no true reports of tanks in Baghdad, you know, even as the, the capital of, of Iraq was falling. But the truth about lockdowns, particularly, is, is beginning to come out. And from a public health standpoint, lockdowns not only weren't necessary, but they also imposed enormous economic and societal costs as well, And there's a new study out from Johns Hopkins that confirms what so many people were saying over the last couple of years. Let me share a couple of excerpts with you. This is an article by Steve Watson out of Summit News. A new study out of the renowned Johns Hopkins University has concluded that global lockdowns had a much more detrimental impact on society than they have produced any benefit with researchers urging that they are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. Now, the study was authored by Jonas Herbie, special advisor at the Center for Political Studies in Copenhagen, Denmark, also Lars Junong, professor emeritus in economics at Lund University in Sweden, and Stephen H. Hankey, a professor of applied economics and founder and co-director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise. Now, the authors wrote, while this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they've been adopted. The focus of the study, according to the authors, was to determine whether there is empirical evidence to support the belief that lockdowns reduce COVID-19 mortality. The researchers defined lockdowns as any government mandate that directly restrict people's possibilities, such as policies that limit internal movement, close schools and businesses, and ban international travel. And the researchers further noted that to answer our question, we focused on studies that examined the actual impact of lockdowns on COVID-19 mortality rates based on registered cross-sectionality mortality data and a counterfactual difference-in-difference approach. So, in other words, if you don't speak statistic jargon, and I don't, did lockdowns reduce COVID deaths? That's the question that's at stake here. And the answer is, or the conclusion is, no. The study says lockdowns have had little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality. More specifically, stringency index studies find that lockdowns in Europe and the United States only reduced COVID-19 mortality by 0.2% on average. It adds shelter-in-place orders were also ineffective, only reducing COVID-19 mortality by 2.9% on average. Further noting, specific non-pharmaceutical intervention studies also find no broad-based evidence of noticeable effects on COVID-19 mortality. In other words, lockdowns don't do anything to save people from COVID. 
The authors concluded our meta-analysis fails to confirm that lockdowns have had a large, significant effect on mortality rates. Now, in a further analysis of lockdown versus no lockdown, face masks, closing non-essential businesses, border closures, school closures, and limiting gatherings, the study also found no broad-based evidence of noticeable effects on COVID-19 mortality. Now, these findings bolster a host of previous scientific findings that all conclude lockdowns are ineffective instruments of virus control and actually have caused more damage to people's health and well-being. Stanford University professor of medicine Jay Bhattacharya noted last year that in the years to come, lockdowns will be looked back upon as the most catastrophically harmful policy in all of history. The epidemiologist adding every single poor person on the face of the earth has faced some harm, sometimes catastrophic harm, from this lockdown policy. Adding that we will be counting the catastrophic health and psychological harms imposed on nearly every poor person on the face of the earth for a generation. I don't think he's prone to hyperbole. A peer-reviewed study by Stanford researchers found that mandatory lockdowns do not provide more benefits to stopping the spread of COVID-19 than voluntary measures like social distancing. So I think the takeaway here is the researchers found no clear significant beneficial effect of more restrictive measures on case growth in any country. And I think it probably, you know, needs to be reiterated here. The effects of the lockdown have been devastating. Cancer charities in the UK have been warning there's a crisis underway. Huge numbers of people either not receiving referrals or receiving treatment because they were told, stay at home, don't burden the health system. This is serious stuff. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. Plenty of hyperlinks within to the studies and to, to the evidence that backs this up. And I'm really trying my best not to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm thirsting for vengeance here. But, but I got to ask the question. The people who pushed lockdowns in the face of all evidence to the contrary, who say we had no choice but to do this, these people need to be held accountable. They need to be removed from power, preferably voluntarily. If they had an ounce of, uh, of decency, if they had any sense of awareness, they would resign. But I think that it's also uh, within the realm of possibility. They should be sitting in court, explaining themselves and facing potential criminal liability for the decisions they made that have been so devastating to so many other people. I know that sounds harsh, but I think that justice in its truest sense would require that kind of accountability. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com. Now, you don't have to really even be into food storage to recognize the advantage of having the equivalent of a small grocery store tucked away somewhere inside your dwelling. It's just, it's peace of mind when you know that, okay, so there's a big storm coming. This is true for a lot of, uh, of the United States right now. They just got hit by a massive winter storm, including snow and ice and all the things that come along with a massive winter storm. And, uh, you know, typically there's, there's what's called this, uh, the French toast effect. People run out, they stock up on milk and bread and eggs, you know, things that they're going to need to get them through the next few days or the next couple of weeks. 
Well, if you have a food storage program in place, especially if you buy good quality food storage, such as the product sold by LifesavingFood.com, you've got food with a 25-year shelf life. Put it aside for a rainy day or a snowy day, as the case may be, and rest easy that you've done your part. You have stores to draw upon in a time of need. And best of all, my friend Kendall Whiting will make it worth your while with a 20% discount, no sales tax, and free delivery. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Take a look, see if there's something you need, and if you get it, be sure to let him know that you heard about it here. So I'm hearing a lot of calls <clears throat> for people to get boosted for their own good. I think one of the most ironic is uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who uh, mysteriously was exposed to COVID and then apparently tested positive for COVID and uh, still urged everybody, follow the health guidelines, get boosted, get vaccinated. Well, here's a here's an urging to get a booster that I think I'm going to actually act upon, and that is Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org urging take a liberty booster. And he says, recently I was flipping through A Child's History of the World by Virgil Hillier. And he says, I never used this classic textbook with my own children or my students. And now he says, I regret that oversight. Hillier writes well and simply about the past and sometimes with a wry sense of humor as evidenced by these lines, measles and mumps are very catching. So are revolutions. Now, Jeff Minnick says, that little phrase got me thinking about the similarities between our world and Hillier's as well as the things we can do to prevent catching today's virus of totalitarianism. Now, when Hillier penned the little ditty above, he says mumps and measles were indeed very catching. But it's Hillier's second sentence that really grabbed my attention. Hillier uses these two lines to introduce his chapter on the French Revolution. And he's right. Revolutions can be quite infectious. The French Revolution sparked similar uprisings across Europe during the 19th century, and inspired the revolutionaries who overthrew the government of Tsarist Russia. The Soviet Union fell apart several decades ago, but communism and revolution remain very much alive. And now a new revolution is taking place in the United States of America. Now, it's not a revolution of the proletariat, but one that comes from above, instigated, maybe inflicted is the better word, by some of our elected leaders and bureaucrats, our top military brass, big tech, big business, and a compliant media. They seem intent on transforming our republic. Now, Jeff Minnick says, Today we treat many diseases with vaccines and therapeutics such as vitamin C and D and zinc. Thinking about Hillier's revolutions in diseases and our present crisis, he says, It occurred to me that there are several vaccines and therapeutics that we can use to inoculate ourselves and boost our resistance to totalitarianism in this COVID time. And these are solid suggestions. First one, read literature about liberty. Now he says, I've just finished Against the Tide, the best of Roger Scruton's columns, commentaries, and criticisms. He says, a couple of months earlier, I read Scruton's Culture Counts, Faith and Feeling in a World Besieged. In both volumes, Scruton delivers a rousing defense of tradition and virtue and warns against creeping totalitarianism. In addition, he says, I've also read some of the essays in Remembering the Right, the two magazine-length collections put out by Chronicles magazine. Here are many biographies about such conservative stalwarts as Whitaker Chambers, Alfred J. Nock, and Richard Weaver. Reading these pieces is a grand reminder of all the thinkers who in the past protested dictatorial government 
and defended both the American way of life and the transcendent. All such publications are like essential vitamins to help ward off the virus of collectivism. By the way, if you're going to read literature about uh, liberty, too, there's a couple other names I would throw in there for your consideration. Anything by Ezra Taft Benson is going to give you a much better grasp of what the proper limits and proper role of government might be. And anything by Leonard E. Reed will get right to the heart of what it means to live the principles and practices of freedom. Just a suggestion. Second suggestion here from Jeff Minnick. Stop looking at politicians as our saviors. Now, he says many conservatives speak of the red tide in the November election. Once the Republicans win back the House, they contend all the wrongs inflicted on the body politic this year will magically vanish. And Jeff Minnick wisely warns, not so fast. The Republicans now in office seem largely ineffectual. Since January 20th, 2021, for example, the current administration has encouraged waves of immigrants to invade our southern border. Along with them have come gangs of criminals and loads of fentanyl, the poisonous drug that claimed its share of more than 100,000 U.S. overdose deaths in the 12 months preceding April 2021. And for most of the Republicans elected to Congress, nary a peep. Number three, he recommends, seek the truth. There is no Democrat or Republican truth. There is only truth. And that medication seems to be in short supply today. Is ivermectin an effective therapeutic for COVID? Is there a valid reason for the United States to go to war in the Ukraine? Are our government schools failing as badly as some believe? Regarding these and so many other issues and events, politics, misinformation, and in some cases, mendacity, have thrown a cloak over reality. But Jeff Minnick says truth will win out in the end. Talk to people. Investigate online headlines before taking them at face value. Trust your common sense. And you can discern the truth. Finally, he recommends, talk to like-minded friends. Now, this doesn't mean build yourself an echo chamber, but he says, whenever my good friend John and I get together, we inevitably sit down and gripe about politics and culture. John turns the air blue with his language. He says, okay, sometimes I add to that discoloration, but we always end up laughing and claiming to have once again solved our nation's problems. Now, this grousing may seem like an exercise in futility, but he says it relieves stress and helps keep us sane. Never despair. Never say die. Remember, we're on the side of liberty. So let's take all these boosters and let's keep fighting the virus. The virus, of course, being totalitarianism. By the way, on that last one, talking to like-minded friends. I'm, t- I'm going to tell you this at the risk of appearing weak and ineffectual in your eyes, but I I don't care. I just, I, I'll want you to, to understand that, like anybody else, I struggle sometimes to keep my spirits up and to to keep, you know, a positive, you know, gleam in my eye as I'm boldly marching forward. And I have a handful of friends, I you know, with whom I'm I'm simpatico. And I feel, you know, this this sense of kinship, like we are kindred spirits. Every so often, maybe every other week or so, I get the need to just Touch base with them. Call them up. We don't need to, you know, visit for hours on the phone, but just even a short five or ten minute conversation does so much to restore my sense of balance and to reassure me that, look, there are people out there who still care. There are still people out there who get it. There are people who are struggling just the same as I am. 
and I draw strength from it. Now, I understand not everybody has someone that they can turn to. And I, I don't know what to tell you other than these people are out there. You have people within your circle of influence. And if, if you can't immediately peg someone, you know, as well, this is the person I would lean on to, to help me, you know, restore my spirits or reaffirm, you know, my commitment to the cause of liberty. Maybe look around and notice if there are people reaching out to you for some kind of reassurance. Because that's a very distinct possibility. This isn't all, you know, take, take, take. you got to be willing to give as well. But let's do our best to support each other and to encourage each other and keep that positive attitude moving forward. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to welcome my friend Caleb Franz back to the program. Caleb, as you may remember, is one of the hosts of the uh, Profiles in Liberty series, and this is going to be a regular feature, Caleb. We're going to have you on here to talk about uh, about history, history being applied. Uh, first of all, for people who are just uh, hearing about uh, Profiles in History for the first time, give us a little bit of a, a pitch for, for your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Brian, for uh, for for having uh, having me come back onto the program and and do this. This is a lot of fun, and I think this is going to be a great segment moving forward. Um, essentially, you know, my my program profiles in liberty. We are entering our second season, um, and throughout that program, I endeavor to highlight certain individuals throughout uh, history that I find to be. Uh, inspiring, or uh, I find to to kind of give a certain example about how we can move forward, and and they can teach us certain lessons about liberty in our own time um, here. And some of these individuals you may have heard of. Uh, the first uh, episode last season I did was on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this season we're going into individuals like Frederick Douglass and uh, people like Harriet Tubman, uh, but. A lot of people, especially in this season, uh, I don't think that many people are aware of, and that makes it very exciting for me personally as a storyteller and as a communicator of, of these individuals because um, these are people who made a serious impact on the course of our history and the course of our, our nation moving forward, and uh, it's, it's about time that they had their stories uh, shined on and, and highlighted. So I'm I think last last time we spoke, you were telling me the theme, if if there is for for this season, mm-hmm. is the equalizers. Yes, yes, that's right. So the first season we had um, we had the signers of the Declaration of Independence was was the theme of that. We we highlighted eight individuals, uh, and this season um, is sort of the natural progression of what we did in season one and in in season two uh, the theme is as you mentioned the equalizers is is what i'm calling them Um, people who fulfill the promise of 1776 now some of these individuals uh were around before 1776 happened (laughs) and and the and the declaration of independence happened Um, but they are still individuals who the the heart and the core even though america wasn't quite there yet at that time uh, these are people who uh, they they blaze the trail to to show this country and to show us now and to show uh, America then as well uh, what this country and what this idea of of the United States could actually look like one day. 
Um, and and those are those are the people that we highlight in this in this season. Uh, this sounds like a great way to understand that. To, look, influence begets influence, and and we mm-hmm. build upon the efforts of those who came before us. And uh, anyway, I'm, I'm very happy that you're doing this. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Frederick Douglass, and and in particular, I think there was a story you were going to share with us today. That's right. Yeah. So Frederick Douglass is the um, is the individual that I highlight in this first episode, and it's actually. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode. It's the largest one that we've done so far, uh, even surpassing that of the uh, Thomas Jefferson episode, which was the largest from the last season, um, because it is uh, such a rich uh, story of of his life. Uh, and there's one story in particular that I highlight uh, in the first half of of this of this episode um, that I that I do that really I think showcases not just him, who he was as a person, but also he was able to sort of blaze a trail and show America a better way forward as we are moving past uh, this heinous institution of of slavery that we found ourselves in at the time. Uh, And that is whenever he uh, whenever he went to to meet with his former master who was on his deathbed, um, and they were able to finally sort of not necessarily make amends, but but Frederick Douglass was able to let go. Uh, and that was a powerful instance in his own personal life. And it was something that can kind of teach us uh, something important moving forward as a, as a nation and our ability to forgive even the most heinous and, and atrocious actions and deeds. And it it's, shows how important it is uh, for us to heal moving forward. And I, I think certainly we're in a time where uh, we we need a lot of healing in our in our nation currently, um, and across the world as as tensions are constantly rising, um, and that's truly going to be the best way forward. Tell a little us, bit tell of context, me. yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit of context here, you know, and, uh, the the idea of abolition was something that was immensely popular even leading up to to the Civil War, but there was a, a a lot of major concerns with that as well, especially with if it was an absolute abolition or if it was something that, uh, in other words, just overnight without any precondition, no no gradual emancipation or, or anything like that. There's a famous quote uh, from Thomas Jefferson comparing slavery to, uh, to a wolf and saying that there is uh, no real uh, safe way we can either hold it by its ear or safely let it go. Now, a lot of people you know, point to that and say he's comparing slaves to animals or something like that but that's not really what he was saying he was he was talking about the complexity of how do we even approach this issue in the first place um and moving forward you know a lot of people were 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 highly concerned about the outbreak of a a race war uh, because they would see how slave masters would treat their slaves um, and they thought, you know, it's very likely that that people who were out on the receiving end of that would probably want uh, some form of vengeance. And Frederick Douglass was able to show show uh, this country uh, that we can move forward without resorting to to that sort of vengeful mentality. And he, and he once he earned his uh, once he once he claimed his his freedom, he was able to uh, he wrote a, an editorial, an open letter. To his to his former master, saying uh, essentially there would be no roof under which uh, you would be safer than mine. I am your fellow man, but I am not your slave. Uh, and that was a powerful instance and a powerful point in American history. And then we fast forward several decades, and he's finally able to meet with 
with and sit down in a room with his his former master um, and they can just not hold uh, they they really can't hold themselves together they they broke they break down into into tears and are full of full of emotion just talking about trying to catch up on life and talking about the mistakes that they've made um, as well as like the approach of death and uh, which was coming quickly for both of them uh, Douglas said that you know it wasn't you that I fled from it was it was slavery that I fled from and Thomas Ald was even able to admit that you know if I were in your shoes I would have done the exact same thing that you did uh, which was a pretty big thing for for someone like him specifically to admit because he was by no means uh, a kind <laughs> a kind slave master uh, by any stretch of the imagination during Douglas's time um, but rather than be at each other's throats up until the bitter end, they were able to finally let go of, of that conflict and that, uh, and that uh, hatred uh, and move on from it. And then Thomas Ald actually died just three years after that, uh, that happened. Um, and Frederick Douglass was able to finally find some closure uh, on uh, between him and his, and his former master. I, one of the things as you're describing that, that, that pops into my mind is, you know, we think about it, we look back, and we have this luxury of hindsight. Well, of course it was wrong. How could they not have seen it mm-hmm. was wrong? But slavery, like it or not, it was accepted by a majority of the population. It was considered very mainstream. The people who yeah. were abolitionists were out there on the fringes, and, and mm-hmm. it was that way for a long time. And that's and that doesn't mean that everybody who came before us was evil, but clearly they had some blind spots that uh, were very hard to acknowledge. And I think Frederick Douglass, the way you're describing it, was was very helpful in, in helping to illustrate that blind spot without just doing so as a matter of I've got to destroy everything and everyone that was associated with it. Um, I mean, it's, this sounds like a, a story that conveys conscience at work. It does, yeah, it, real conscience. Uh, I, I think that slave or uh, excuse me, Frederick Douglass himself had a lot of um, he had had a very vengeful attitude and a very he was angry uh, at 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 the institution of slavery and he was angry that this country was able to put him through so much. But as he grew and as he learned um, about what the true uh, the true intentions of, of the founding fathers was not to to keep people in chains but to to liberate people and that helped him sort of. Uh, take apart his own chains, his own personal chains, his his uh, emotional chains away from him, and let go of things. Um, and I, I think that uh, that that really helps this country move forward in in a way that uh, a lot of us don't fully appreciate even today. Caleb, tell everybody where they can find profiles in liberty, and and let's uh, let's get them connected with this excellent podcast. Yes, so uh, you can find profiles in liberty anywhere where you get your podcasts from. Um, For the next eight weeks, we are going to be going over the equalizers. Um, So I hope that you'll join me on this journey through discovery. Uh, And I am also on Twitter at Caleb Franz for those interested. Okay. And this is, and I want you folks to know, if you enjoyed that story, uh, Caleb is going to be joining me every other week. We're going to be highlighting another one of these stories. I think it's a great learning opportunity. And I so appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. This was great. All right. Again, we're talking with Caleb Franz. He is the host of Profiles in Liberty. I'll have links in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. And we'll be back right after these messages. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who like to revel in wrong think. And if you're one of those people who at least likes to think for yourself, congratulations. You're a wrong thinker. Now, if you shy away from that label, I want you to know it's a badge of honor to be a wrong thinker, to think clearly and independently in times such as these. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. I have, uh, I've been friends with Connor Boyack for quite a while. Connor is the uh, president and founder of Libertas Institute, one of the institutions that uh, I think is it's a nonprofit uh, think tank that is making a huge, huge difference in promoting the ideals of liberty. And Connor has some very relevant thoughts on truckers, Joe Rogan, and unacceptable views. This came out in their uh, Tuttle Twins newsletter just recently. Connor starts with, uh, been one heck of a week, hasn't it? He says, for starters, Canadian truckers and their Freedom Convoy have mounted a stunning protest against draconian COVID rules forced by Justin Trudeau and his band of lower government cronies. In fact, so many trucks have joined the ever-growing convoy to the tune of more than 50,000. It broke the world record for the largest truck parade 10 times over. Yeah, they were saying it was like a 45-mile-long procession of trucks. And it wasn't only the truckers protesting, Connor says. Fed-up Canadians lined the highways to greet the convoy, waving signs of support and cheering their their countrymen on. And it didn't take long before certain bureaucrats in Nova Scotia decided to outlaw protesting from the side of the road. Yep. You know, in the name of public safety. Mm Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Connor says, I have to be honest, watching all of this is a little embarrassing for us Americans. Have we really let ourselves slip so far into complacency? We're getting out-protested by the world's most agreeable people. We're supposed to be the crazy individualists, for crying out loud. Now, he says, in all seriousness, it's been a real bright spot to see thousands of our northern neighbors stand up to their horrifically authoritarian rulers. Just like Australia, Canada's handling of the pandemic has been a pretty great reminder of what's at stake if we forget or stop caring about our individual liberties. Now, lest we forget... Canada and Australia were once free democracies, you know, embracing the Western tradition of representative government and personal liberty. Fast forward to today, and unjabbed Canadians can't even grocery shop without a government babysitter. And he says, don't even get me started on Australian quarantine camps. But as we're seeing right now, these draconian rules have not been without consequences. Apparently, Justin Trudeau didn't want to deal with these consequences because when the convoy hit the capital city of Ottawa, he was nowhere in sight. After claiming he'd been exposed to COVID and needed to quarantine, he took the cowardice a step further and was whisked away to a secret trucker-free location. 
Now, it's not such an unfamiliar scenario to us Americans, is it? Connor says, while serious problems arise, soaring inflation, prolonged lockdowns, COVID test shortages, tensions on the rise in Russia, to name a few, our president is nowhere to be found. Or rather, his staff is hoping he isn't found. Connor says, I'm guessing they have him right where they want him, squirreled away with an ice cream cone and a coloring book somewhere in the West Wing until they have his teleprompter ready for the next, quote, press conference. And as long as the media keeps sticking to the scripted questions and leading with segments on his new cat, everything will just keep tick- will keep ticking just fine, until it won't. Now he says, eventually we will truly understand what happens when the leader of the free world lies to the public and hides from his job. There are consequences on the horizon. People are fed up with being lied to and taken for stupid. And the more we all make that known, the more the establishment loses its mind. You know how I know? Because a podcast hosted by a Bernie bro MMA commentator slash comedian is becoming the center of global controversy. Crosby, Stills, and Nash are weighing in for Pete's sake, and over what? Evidently, the thought crime of interviewing two prominent healthcare figures with unique perspectives on COVID-19. Now, Connor Boyack says it's pretty unsurprising that Joe Rogan is making a mockery of CNN's ratings. He says, I have a feeling it has something to do with the fact that he doesn't treat his constituency like they're idiots. He interviews all sorts of folks and gasps, lets people make up their own minds. Our mainstream media and government could learn a thing or two from him, but they won't. Instead, they'll paint him as a bigot, a white supremacist, and a greedy charlatan spreading dangerous misinformation. Now, the good news, it's not going to work. In fact, it will continue to backfire. We'll see it in this year's elections when people who've been lied to repeatedly by the government and its crony medical establishment enter the privacy of the voting booth. It'll be game over for the Democrats and their COVID regime. And Connor says, let's just hope that when the pendulum swings, it's back to the ideas of liberty. The same ones that brought this nation from a ragtag band of farmers to a global superpower in under 300 years. Now he says, I'll admit it. Thinking about where our country today is headed can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. We know that the future is in the hands of today's children, and this means ensuring that America's future starts with kitchen tables and bedtime stories. Now, he says, this is why I wrote the Tuttle Twins series, to help parents with the daunting task of raising peaceful protesters, critical thinkers, status quo questioners. We can't afford to fail the next generation when it comes to the ideas that matter. So he says, if you've been on the fence about buying a Tuttle Twins book, this week's been a great reminder of the stakes. Canadian truckers and fearless podcasters are awesome, but we're going to need a whole lot more folks with that kind of spit in the years to come. So he says, join me and the Tuttle Twins team in ensuring liberty survives another generation. Keep on trucking. Now, I know there are some who would be tempted to dismiss this. Oh, yeah, no, Connor's just trying to sell more books. Well, I've worked alongside this guy. And I want you to understand that I don't think there is anybody I know who is a harder worker and more dedicated and more selfless in how he works than Mr. Boyack. And the Tuttle Twins books 
are a brilliant way not just to get kids exposed to the principles and practices of liberty, the ideas of what a free market is and how it works and the, the basics of free market economics, but it's great for adults too. Parents, grandparents, these are stories that are broken down and, and often borrowing from classic stories like uh, Leonard Reed's I Pencil Essay into concepts that young minds can get around. And, and the whole thinking here is that it's so much easier to teach kids these principles when they're young than it is to try to counteract misconceptions that we were taught all of our lives. And as adults, we have a very difficult time overcoming. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we're all stuck in the mud here, but, you know, it's, it's hard for us to change our minds. It's hard to unlearn bad habits. If, if I could use this analogy, maybe some dads will understand this. When I, when I first started to teach my daughters how to shoot a twenty two rifle, I was astonished at how quickly they picked up on shooting. And they're, they're very good shots. I mean, they are, like, impressively good. Ridiculously good to the point that I was like, okay, that's enough. Put it down. You're making me look bad. Okay, I'm only half kidding. But one of the reasons why they were, were so good is because they had fewer bad habits to unlearn. I struggled a lot more learning how to be a good shot than they did because I had picked up a lot of habits over the years. Okay, now this let's apply that to, to liberty and to understanding the world around us. This isn't about turning your kids into radicals. This isn't about turning your kids into the kind of people who, you know, mask their faces and dress in black and burn businesses and beat people and, you know, chant slogans and want to fight everybody who doesn't think exactly like them. That sounds more like Marxism. This is a much better approach. This is an approach that is, uh, that is based in morality as well as truth and timeless principles that have actually stood the test of time. And i got to apologize if this sounds like, wow, Brian, this is just like one big infomercial for the Tuttle Twins. Well, it's, it is an infomercial of sorts, but it's more for the cause of freedom. The Tuttle Twins are just one of those tools with which you can put a better understanding of the principles and practices of freedom in the hands, in the minds, in the hearts of the ones who have the heavy lifting to do in the days ahead, and that would be our kids. It's a great time to start. I'll have a link to Connor's email in the uh, show notes. We'll be back in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who like to revel in wrong think. And if you're one of those people who at least likes to think for yourself, congratulations. You're a wrong thinker. 
Now, if you shy away from that label, I want you to know it's a badge of honor to be a wrong thinker, to think clearly and independently in times such as these. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and LifesavingFood.com. I have uh, I've been friends with Connor Boyack for quite a while. Connor is the uh, president and founder of Libertas Institute, one of the institutions that uh, I think is it's a nonprofit uh, think tank that is making a huge, huge difference in promoting the ideals of liberty. And Connor has some very relevant thoughts on truckers, Joe Rogan, and unacceptable views. This came out in their uh, Tuttle Twins newsletter just recently. Connor starts with, uh, been one heck of a week, hasn't it? He says, for starters, Canadian truckers in their Freedom Convoy have mounted a stunning protest against draconian COVID rules forced by Justin Trudeau and his band of lower government cronies. In fact, so many trucks have joined the ever-growing convoy to the tune of more than 50,000. It broke the world record for the largest truck parade 10 times over. Yeah, they were saying it was like a 45-mile-long procession of trucks. And it wasn't only the truckers protesting, Connor says. Fed-up Canadians lined the highways to greet the convoy, waving signs of support and cheering their, their countrymen on. And it didn't take long before certain bureaucrats in Nova Scotia decided to outlaw protesting from the side of the road. Yep. You know, in the name of public safety. Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Connor says, I have to be honest, watching all of this is a little embarrassing for us Americans. Have we really let ourselves slip so far into complacency? We're getting out-protested by the world's most agreeable people. We're supposed to be the crazy individualists, for crying out loud. Now, he says, in all seriousness, it's been a real bright spot to see thousands of our northern neighbors stand up to their horrifically authoritarian rulers. Just like Australia, Canada's handling of the pandemic has been a pretty great reminder of what's at stake if we forget or stop caring about our individual liberties. Now, lest we forget... Canada and Australia were once free democracies, you know, embracing the Western tradition of representative government and personal liberty. Fast forward to today and unjabbed Canadians can't even grocery shop without a government babysitter. And he says, don't even get me started on Australian quarantine camps. But as we're seeing right now, these draconian rules have not been without consequences. Apparently, Justin Trudeau didn't want to deal with these consequences because when the convoy hit the capital city of Ottawa, he was nowhere in sight. After claiming he'd been exposed to COVID and needed to quarantine, he took the cowardice a step further and was whisked away to a secret trucker-free location. Now, it's not such an unfamiliar scenario to us Americans, is it? Connor says, while serious problems arise, soaring inflation, prolonged lockdowns, COVID test shortages, tensions on the rise in Russia, to name a few, our president is nowhere to be found. Or rather, his staff is hoping he isn't found. Connor says, I'm guessing they have him right where they want him, squirreled away with an ice cream cone and a coloring book somewhere in the West Wing until they have his teleprompter ready for the next, quote, press conference. And as long as the media keeps sticking to the scripted questions and leading with segments on his new cat, everything will just keep tick will keep ticking just fine until it won't. Now he says eventually we will truly understand what happens when the leader of the free world 
lies to the public, and hides from his job. There are consequences on the horizon. People are fed up with being lied to and taken for stupid. And the more we all make that known, the more the establishment loses its mind. You know how I know? Because a podcast hosted by a Bernie bro MMA commentator slash comedian is becoming the center of global controversy. Crosby, Stills, and Nash are weighing in for Pete's sake, and over what? Evidently, the thought crime of interviewing two prominent healthcare figures with unique perspectives on COVID-19. Now, Connor Boyack says it's pretty unsurprising that Joe Rogan is making a mockery of CNN's ratings. He says, I have a feeling it has something to do with the fact that he doesn't treat his constituency like they're idiots. He interviews all sorts of folks and gasps, lets people make up their own minds. Our mainstream media and government could learn a thing or two from him, but they won't. Instead, they'll paint him as a bigot, a white supremacist, and a greedy charlatan spreading dangerous misinformation. Now, the good news, it's not going to work. In fact, it will continue to backfire. We'll see it in this year's elections when people who've been lied to repeatedly by the government and its crony medical establishment enter the privacy of the voting booth. It'll be game over for the Democrats and their COVID regime. And Connor says, let's just hope that when the pendulum swings, it's back to the ideas of liberty. The same ones that brought this nation from a ragtag band of farmers to a global superpower in under 300 years. Now he says, I'll admit it. Thinking about where our country today is headed can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. We know that the future is in the hands of today's children, and this means ensuring that America's future starts with kitchen tables and bedtime stories. Now, he says, this is why I wrote the Tuttle Twins series, to help parents with the daunting task of raising peaceful protesters, critical thinkers, status quo questioners. We can't afford to fail the next generation when it comes to the ideas that matter. So he says, if you've been on the fence about buying a Tuttle Twins book, this week's been a great reminder of the stakes. Canadian truckers and fearless podcasters are awesome, but we're going to need a whole lot more folks with that kind of spit in the years to come. So he says, join me and the Tuttle Twins team in ensuring liberty survives another generation. Keep on trucking. Now, I know there are some who would be tempted to dismiss this. Oh, yeah, no, Connor's just trying to sell more books. Well, I've worked alongside this guy. And I want you to understand that I don't think there is anybody I know who is a harder worker and more dedicated and more selfless in how he works than Mr. Boyack. And the Tuttle Twins books are a brilliant way not just to get kids exposed to the principles and practices of liberty, the ideas of what a free market is and how it works and the the basics of free market economics, but it's great for adults too. Parents, grandparents, these are stories that are broken down and and often borrowing from classic stories like uh, Leonard Reed's I Pencil Essay into concepts that young minds can get around. And and the whole thinking here is that it's so much easier to teach kids these principles when they're young than it is to try to counteract misconceptions that we were taught all of our lives. And as adults, we have a very difficult time overcoming. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like we're all stuck in the mud here, but, you know, it's, it's hard for us to change our minds. 
it's hard to unlearn bad habits. If, if I could use this analogy, maybe some dads will understand this. When I, when I first started to teach my daughters how to shoot a twenty two rifle, I was astonished at how quickly they picked up on shooting. And they're, they're very good shots. I mean, they are, like, impressively good. Ridiculously good to the point that I was like, okay, that's enough. Put it down. You're making me look bad. Okay, I'm only half kidding. But one of the reasons why they were, were so good is because they had fewer bad habits to unlearn. I struggled a lot more learning how to be a good shot than they did because I had picked up a lot of habits over the years. Okay, now this let's apply that to, to liberty and to understanding the world around us. This isn't about turning your kids into radicals. This isn't about turning your kids into the kind of people who, you know, mask their faces and dress in black and burn businesses and beat people and, you know, chant slogans and want to fight everybody who doesn't think exactly like them. That sounds more like Marxism. This is a much better approach. This is an approach that is, uh, that is based in morality as well as truth and timeless principles that have actually stood the test of time. And i got to apologize. If this sounds like, wow, Brian, this is just like one big infomercial for the Tuttle Twins. Well, it's, it is an infomercial of sorts, but it's more for the cause of freedom. The Tuttle Twins are just one of those tools with which you can put a better understanding of the principles and practices of freedom in the hands, in the minds, in the hearts of the ones who have the heavy lifting to do in the days ahead, and that would be our kids. It's a great time to start. I'll have a link to Connor's email in the uh, show notes. We'll be back in just a few moments. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Glad you could join us today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Now, this, uh, this message is of great relevance for anybody within the state of Utah because uh, Heather Turner's team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you if you are in the market for a home loan, from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, even if you're refinancing your existing mortgage. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage brings decades of experience in the lending industry to the table. That means that uh, you can count on her experience and her insight to get you the loan you need without delay. And time is of the essence. I mean, what a competitive real estate market it's been. If you want to contact her, here's how you do it. There's a link to her email in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You can also stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Call 435-703-4522. And remember, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I came across this uh, this article from Joaquin Book, and I thought this was really fascinating because uh, I think sometimes it's it's hard to keep perspective. That's one of the most difficult skills to master is to keep everything in perspective. And and I'm not just talking politically. For instance, uh, do you do you ever struggle with this idea 
Why am I the only one who ever does the dishes in this house? Or why am I the only one who ever does or folds the laundry? Why am I the only one who ever takes out the trash? I think I may have grumbled aloud about a couple of those things uh, from time to time. And, And what we're doing is we're laboring under the impression that we are the only one. It's the negativity effect. And it applies in many, many areas of our life. And I, I'm sharing this with you because, you know, we, we uh, in, in the words of my friend Kurt Mercadante, we marinate in negativity. And then we wonder, why is everything so negative? Why is everybody so angry all the time? And that's because we kind of tend to, to soak in it. So this article from uh, Joaquin Book was very eye-opening to me. He says, these days when I zone out from the chattering news and the polarizing quibbles of Twitter, I read John Tierney and Roy Roy Baumeister's fascinating The Power of Bad, how the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it. He says, when I'm not in the mood for fiction or epic journeys, that is, that's that's what I like to read. Even though much of the psychology, much of psychology rather, lies in ruins and it's hard to trust results from that field. Well, King Book says, I admire Tierney and choose to take his word for it. If he writes about some experiment or psychological result, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. With Roy Baumeister, a respected psychologist at the University of Queensland, he's given us a nice summary of the negativity effect, the psychological insight that humans view bad events more powerfully than good events of a similar magnitude. Now, the authors estimate that you need about three or four good events of similar kinds to outweigh the psychological impact of a single bad one. In our psyches, bad is more powerful than good. Our gaze is pulled toward hostile faces before friendly faces. We dwell on minor criticisms way longer than we appreciate avalanches of praise. We fear losses more than we celebrate gains. Sound familiar? Now, he says, maybe that's evolutionary, uh, evolutionary beneficial. What do I know? But it's absolutely detrimental to an accurate rendition of the world around us. Now, Joaquin Book says the negativity effect isn't a surprise to anyone who has done some behavioral economics. In essence, Tierney and Baumeister's argument about the power of bad is just the extension of loss aversion into more parts of life. And he says, neither is it a surprise to anyone who grew up with a sibling and the spirals of escalating violence and mean actions that characterized our childhood. When I poked my sister in a cheeky way, she interpreted it as hostile and mean and retaliated as such. I perceived her response as totally disproportionate and decided to punish her in return with more violence. And before you know it, a playful or innocent something has escalated into all-out war. Married couples or friends in serious disagreement can probably relate. The speck in your brother's eye looms large, not so much the log in your own. Now he says, likewise, in my house it feels like I'm the only one taking out the garbage, getting more coffee when it runs out, or emptying the dishwasher when it's finished its cleaning cycle. Rationally, I know perfectly well that others do it too. With my own deceitful eyes, I've seen my housemates empty the dishwasher, but every time I stand there unloading one piece of ungrateful china, mug, glass, or cutlery after another, I mutter aggressively to myself, wondering why I'm the only one doing this. How can it be that, how can it really be that I'm doing this frustratingly slow chore every time? Now, the answer, of course, is it's not every time. 
I don't see those other times, and I don't feel the pain and frustration and anger that others likely feel when it's their turn to empty the stupid dishwasher. Tierney and Baumeister posit that similar dynamics are operating in relationships. Your partner won't see or appreciate the full effort of the chores or deeds you do. Making up for a previous mistake requires more than just one thing, but that doesn't mean that you should send four orders of flowers to make up for one faux pas. What it does mean is that one batch of flowers probably won't undo the damage, so you probably need to throw in some other forms of reparation. Joaquin Book says, What I did yesterday in my uncharacteristically pessimistic comment was giving in to feelings of despair and fear and hysteria. Sometimes the rational reassurances from the prefrontal prefrontal cortex are no match for the primal responses of the amygdala. The author's right, and that's exactly it. The power of bad is scary, and we need practical tools to step back, reconsider, and calmly send the question back to the prefrontal cortex to rationally assess what we ought to do. So think before you act, my parents wisely told me as a child. And he says, Tierney and Baumeister are helping me with that. I just thought this was a really excellent and helpful tidbit of information that uh, you and I might benefit from. And I think this is one of the big challenges, too. And, and I struggle with this, as, as I've mentioned many times. I want to have a well-informed audience. I want to, I want to share with you good, relevant, uh, empowering information. But sometimes I get uh, I get a wheel off the road and, and the, the, the negativity just pulls me right onto the shoulder. And next thing you know, I'm mired in, you know, here's the bad stuff that's going on. Oh, it's as bad as we suspected or it's even worse. So I apologize in advance for those times when it happens. I try to avoid it, but I don't always get there. I think there's a rule at play here, and I don't, I don't know exactly what that rule is, whether it's the law of attraction or something similar, but we do tend to seek, or we do tend to find, rather, whatever it is that, that we're looking for. People who are obsessed with racism or, you know, sexism or some other ism and are perpetually in a state of agitation, oh, it's everywhere, it's everywhere, they're actively looking for it. I guess we wouldn't be too surprised when they find it. Now, the corollary to this is people who are actively looking for the positive. Few as they may be, there are people who are like that. They're looking for the silver lining in every cloud. They're looking for some good intention. Even if somebody cuts them off in traffic, oh, man, you know, this guy must have a sick child or this mom must have a sick child they're trying to get home to. I do know that when we look for the good, we tend to find it. When we look for the bad, we shouldn't be too surprised when we find that too. Now, acknowledging this isn't uh, the same thing as saying, so therefore, just look for the good and eh, problem solved. I think this takes a lot of practice. I think it uh, is something that requires the development of a habit of sorts. And even then... Even if you succeed, you'd start looking at the positive side of things. You're going to have people tell you, well, what you're doing, in fact, is just burying your head in the sand. You're just putting it in a box so you don't have to deal with it. Well, all I know is we we have choice in terms of what we tend to focus our mind, our thoughts, and our efforts on. 
if we consciously think about looking for positive, affirming, and empowering things, I'm thinking that's going to be more productive than simply wallowing in the negativity. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't signed up for my show notes, I just want to give you a quick... I want to just give a very quick plug here. These show notes are there to uh, enable people who are willing to dig a little bit deeper on any of these topics to, uh, to drop down that rabbit hole and go just as far as you would like. And I'm not trying to waste your time. I try to find information that is credible, that's timely, that's based in principle more than it's based in fear or anger or hatred. And most importantly, it's on you. You get to decide, is this important enough that I want to follow? I'm not telling you you should agree with this. You should think this way. This is just for those who say, hey, that was an interesting topic. I want to find out more. Those show notes will have links that will take you into these articles. Often these articles are very, very well sourced with links of their own. You know, my goal is to help uh, create a very well-informed listening audience, which may or may not agree with me on any given topic. You know, that agreement is not the point. It's are we doing our best to see the world clearly and independently, especially during times of crisis? And I think it's safe to say we're living in times of crisis right now. So with that in mind, you know, one of the biggest duties on us as citizens is see the world as it is. Now, economics is a good way to uh, to help better understand how the world works. But unfortunately, economics to a lot of folks, if you if you were to bring it up, hey, let's have a that little discussion about economics you could just watch people's eyes just glaze over oh he said economics i'm out you know mentally they've left the room so it can be boring until you understand how economics applies in your life for instance uh, let's just say hypothetically that uh, you eat food on a regular basis well here's a great article from the foundation for economic education this is from uh, caitlin gilligan the Dark Truth About America's Agricultural System. And the, the sub-headline here is, Agricultural markets in the U.S. aren't free, but they should be. Now, this is not to, to scare you, but this is to, to help bolster your understanding of, you know, the food that you see on the, the supermarket shelves, or sometimes don't, depending on the day. How it gets there is far more important than you think, and a lot of folks have lost sight of this. Caitlin Gilligan says, lots of businesses have been forced to close their doors thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. With much of the country sliding back into mask mandates and requirements to follow strict health and safety rules, the cost of staying in business has far outweighed the potential for profit in many cases. And in some industries, there's simply no longer any demand for certain services. But one thing that Americans have continued to do throughout the pandemic, maybe even more so, was eat. Now, while farmers across the country have had to contend with COVID-19 rules, they never faced a decline in demand for their product. So why isn't the agriculture industry thriving? Well, it's a bit more complicated than supply and demand, but it doesn't have to be, and it probably shouldn't be. The answers lie in the policies that have controlled farming for the last century, government subsidies and overregulation. 
And while technically U.S. farms operate within the free market system, they hardly follow the basic rules of capitalism. Capitalism requires supply and demand to set prices within the market. Meanwhile, America's dairy industry is regulated by the federal government with milk prices determined by a complicated pricing scheme that carves the nation into geographic federal milk marketing order blocks and derives the supposed value of a gallon of milk from commodity, component, and class considerations rather than consumer demand and cost of production. And it's not just complicated price controls. Beyond standard operating costs like equipment and electricity, farmers have to deal with roughly 63,600 regulations as of 2019, 9,700 of which come from the Environmental Protection Agency alone. Now, by comparison, there were only 6,200 regulations from the EPA on the agricultural industry just 20 years ago. And yet, while farmers have seen significant increases in their costs due to regulation, the prices they receive haven't changed much in the last few years. In that same year of 1999, for instance, a gallon of milk was only $2.88. Now a gallon of whole milk averages $3.45. Adjusting for inflation, that's about $2.18 in 1999, cheaper than the actual 1999 price. Now this means there's very little room for profit as a dairy farmer in today's United States. The slow price, price growth coupled with the 3,000 new regulation that, regulations rather that farmers have to contend with creates limited opportunities for profit. And while U.S. fluid milk production has increased from 162.7 billion pounds to 223.2 billion pounds between 1999 and 2020, fluid milk sales have declined from around 33% of this production to only 20% in 2020. Now, Caitlin Gilligan points out, of course, that dairy is not the only agricultural sector. Taking into consideration all agricultural industries, 36% of farm income comes from government subsidies. Farmers aren't determining how many animals to breed, how many crops to grow, or how many cows to milk based on what the free market demands. More often than not, farmers decide what to plant based on how much government money they can get. This type of government regulation disincentivizes entrepreneurialism and innovation. Even the successful commercial farms rely heavily on government, receiving 73% of all subsidies, making many of them essentially government-owned. This is costing taxpayers more and more money every year. For instance, in 2020, she says farmers received $46 billion in direct aid from the federal government the highest ever, even adjusting for inflation. If farms were allowed to operate within a truly free market, prices would stabilize and supply would meet demand. Now, in a free market system, it's true that only the efficient survive. But is that such a bad thing? Caitlin Gilligan says we should be encouraging farmers to be efficient and innovative, not propping them up with quasi-government, to be quasi-government entities. Ultimately, it would make farmers stronger. And as the country continues to grapple with the fiscal problems from COVID-19, it's more important than ever to make sure our money is being spent responsibly. Encouraging farms to be government-owned is far from responsible and puts our economy on a dangerous path towards socialism. 
By overregulating the agriculture industry, the government stifles growth and innovation, but not allowing the forces of supply and demand to inform farmers' business decisions. And with artificial market forces, in other words, regulations guiding farmers' hands, the outcomes don't allow for much profit or success for the food suppliers of our nation. Can you see the concern here? America will always need food. Let's make sure the market keeps providing it. Again, this is Caitlin Gilligan writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. You ever attend an event called Farm to Fork? I know know of at least one place, Red Acre Farms in southern Utah, uh, does this at least once a year. They have a Farm to Fork event. I'm sure this is true with other areas that have what's called CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Look, I'm not telling you that uh, you need to become, you know, the equivalent of this master gardener and be out there, you know, tending to your crops every day and basically go to an agrarian lifestyle. But I think it's really essential that we don't lose sight of how the food that ends up on our plate got there. Now, I say this as someone who all my life has grown up with the privilege and the the ease of just walking into the supermarket and getting whatever it is that I want and having lots and lots of choices. And I'm not decrying that in, in any respect. But as we have seen on occasion, and I think we're likely to see in the days ahead, the supply chain is, uh, is a much more delicate thing than we have sometimes allowed ourselves to believe. And if you can think back to mid-March of 2020, Remember when the lockdowns first began, how the store shelves emptied? Do you remember that uneasy feeling as you would look up and down and go, wow, those are, that shelf is empty. Maybe you're looking to try and see what was on there. What was it? Was it toilet paper? It was, you know, it was baking supplies. It was tons of stuff. And people were panicking. They were grabbing whatever they could get. Think about that uneasy feeling. And, and, and don't, you know, don't wallow in it, but just... Realize, getting food to the store is a a very remarkable process, but it's one that also could be subject to the control of people who, uh, can I just put this as delicately as possible, don't necessarily have your best interests in mind. What would you do? How could you bolster, you know, your, your ability to feed yourself? whether it's producing more of your own food, having stores of food of your own, whatever the case may be. I'm not going to give you the answers here, but I'm just going to say these are the kinds of questions that people who are serious about their personal freedom and their self-reliance would be asking themselves. And these are the kind of solutions that they would be working on before some kind of crisis is at hand. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. One of my sponsors and definitely the place I would send you if you or someone you love has even the slightest or most, uh, you know, undying interest in quilting, sewing, embroidery. You know, it's astonishing. Uh, My mom has an old uh, 
I think it's called a treadle sewing machine where you basically you pump your foot up and down to keep the sewing machine going. Pretty neat stuff. But compared to the machines and the computerized options that are available today, it's it's astonishing what you can do. If you've, if you've ever so much as sewn a button on by hand, you can appreciate that it's a real skill. Using a needle and thread to, to good effect takes a lot of practice. And, boy, there are machines that can just do remarkable things. Nobody knows more about it. Nobody does a better job of not only selling those machines but servicing them and even teaching you how to use them than Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. I'm grateful to have them as a sponsor. If you click on the link in the show notes, it'll take you right to their website where you can learn all about them. So a couple quick things here. Um, I won't have time to cover this one in great detail, but there's an excellent article by uh, John Stossel. Don't blame greedy corporations for inflation. Blame the government. And I'm just going to give you a couple quick uh, snapshots here. Inflation right now is the worst it's been in 40 years. The price of cars is up 37%. Gas is up 49%. And you have certain people within the political class who are saying, well, this is just the result of, you know, these retailers out there gouging people and being greedy and trying to make money. It's not true. And John Stossel explains how the uh, federal government, along with the Federal Reserve, is debasing the money supply and robbing each dollar of its purchasing power. That is what inflation is. You see the symptom of higher prices, but it's not from the greed of these retailers. And he gives a great example of, of how this works and, and places where it, it's it's gone out of control. Venezuela, Zimbabwe. I mean, you ever held a $100 trillion bill in your hands? Because Zimbabwe was printing them just a few years ago. So I'm going to shift gears. There's, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about. I want to come back to the, uh, the truckers' protest in, uh, in Canada. And it sounds like there is, there is a similar protest that is building, or at least support for this protest is building in America as well. Interestingly enough, Facebook is moving to kind of preemptively shut this down. Oh, you won't be tolerating anything like that. You know, there will be obedience and you will behave yourselves. Or there will be no graham crackers and milk for you children. Well, Bradley C.S. Watson, writing for American Greatness, has a great piece on how the, the media, particularly in Canada, is trying to, January 6th, those uh, truckers who are protesting. By the way, the, there is such a hilarious clip. I can't play it because it is so filled with profanity. But it's a guy... It's a guy... <laughs> in Ottawa, who was absolutely losing his mind. And somebody somebody had posted a short video clip of, you know, this is what's happening in kind of a residential area of downtown Ottawa. And the honking of those truck horns was just incessant. And I know people may say, well, Brian, that's not funny. If you were the one trying to sleep, you wouldn't like it. And here's this guy stalking up and down the street, screaming at these truckers, go home, get out of here. You got to leave. I'm sick of this. And people are like, dude, calm down. You're going to stroke out if you don't uh, mellow out here. And the guy's like, I haven't slept for five blankety blanking days. And uh, he's screaming and he's so angry. You've made me so mad. You made me so crazy. And somebody made the comment. The honking will continue until freedom improves. It did not impress the guy who was having the meltdown, but uh, but it tickled my funny bone. Let's go to Bradley C.S. Watson's article. 
He says, very odd things are happening in Canada, not the least of which is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau fleeing the capital city for security reasons, or so officials say. Now, Canadians are a notoriously compliant, unquestioning, deferential lot, but this hasn't stopped thousands of them from gathering near Parliament buildings in Ottawa to effectively shut down the central part of the city. The trigger for this unprecedented protest is a vaccine mandate for long-haul truckers whose big rigs now line the streets, horns blaring between a variety of protest chants, some of which are more printable than others. Truck Trudeau and variations thereof has been a common refrain. Last week, as the convoys moved toward and converged on the capital from the east, west, and south, numbers are disputed, but it seems certain they formed the longest convoys in history. It became clear that the list of grievances had grown to include just about everything associated with some of the most enduring, draconian, and nonsensical COVID restrictions in the world. Despite the efforts of Canadian media to downplay and distort events in Ottawa, it's easy to see right through them. In the absence of genuine grievances, it would be impossible to convince thousands of people to act, people who are not, I should add, in the professional protesting class that forms an entire subset of Canadian society. These are not the laptop class, but working people who live paycheck to paycheck and have families to feed. They can't afford to take weeks off from whatever work remains to them and march around at minus 35 degree wind chills for frivolous reasons. In fact, many of the protesters have said they are themselves vaccinated, as have many of the thousands of ordinary, as are many of the thousands of ordinary citizens who in sub-zero temperatures cheered the convoys on as they passed. But they've also said they are robustly for freedom of choice, not to mention the right of people to make a living. And they're understandably less keen on policies that are manifestly worthless for halting COVID and have significant trade-offs and costs, including empty shelves in Canadian supermarkets. The extent and disingenuousness of the the elite attacks on the protesters has astounded even me, a reformed Canadian who grew up on a steady diet of Canuck prop. He says it's not as though Canadians are unused to organized protests. To the contrary, They become quite used to preferred protesters such as indigenous peoples occupying things, including people's houses, and the government doing essentially nothing for months or even years at a time. Trudeau himself has boasted of his participation in protests which suit officially approved views, such as Canada's copycat Black Lives Matter disruptions, which, if possible, were even more inane, though less violent, than their American counterparts. Now, he says the revulsion of the elites stems from the fact that having encouraged a culture of near-permanent protest, the protesting has now metastasized. And the folks who this week control the streets of Ottawa don't simply simply don't travel in bien-pesant circles or have the ears of those who do. And they're also very much in the faces and parking spaces of the elites. Now, while it's true that uh, most of the protesters appear to be considerably whiter than Justin Trudeau in blackface, Not all of them are. Nonetheless, this helps make them a particular object of the Prime Minister's ire and contempt. Before the truckers even arrived, in high dudgeon and with a tone of condescension that only someone named Trudeau can muster, the Prime Minister insisted they were nothing more than a small, fringe minority. In Trudeau-speak, fringe means any position not approved by elite opinion. More recently, he refused to meet with protesters, claiming implausibly that they are racist, and more plausibly, that they fill him with disgust. 
Now, it appears some tiny handful of individuals among the protesters, motivations and paymasters unknown, have behaved badly. At last count, if the media are to believed on anything, a single Confederate flag was fleetingly waved by an individual who was uncharacteristically masked. A Nazi flag was unfurled on the periphery. A couple of monuments were not treated with the respect they deserve. Protesters quickly cleaned them up and began guarding them. And a downtown soup kitchen's operations were briefly interfered with. Vagrants have rights! But beyond these incidents, not much to note except righteous indignation on the part of many crowd members and calculated disgust on the part of their fringe prime minister. But the elite hope springs eternal that given time, someone somewhere will do something seriously wrong. It's like they're just begging for it. Now he goes on and takes the Canadian media to to task about how they've been on this incessant incessant search for lone wolves, confederates, neo-Nazis, and science denialists in the overwhelmingly good-natured, if occasionally angry crowd. And like the pod people they appear to be, he says reporters from multiple Canadian news outlets read credulously from the same script. But fortunately, these pathetic attempts at January 6th are not working with wide swaths of an increasingly international audience, although they do maintain their hold in the echo chambers of Canadian official opinion. I don't know, I'm going to have to echo the words of Connor Boyack. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous that the Canadians are showing us up in terms of showing backbone and a willingness to stand and, and be heard. And I'm not going to suggest that, you know, honking your horn and protesting is the highest expression of your freedom. But at least it shows that there are people who have had enough and are willing to put their foot down and say, no more. Have you ever considered where your own line in the sand is? You know, for some people, they might be surprised. I don't Do I have a line? And then there's those of us who uh, not only have a line, but it's uh, actually become a trench thanks to the incessant pushing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.